Hey there, here and now, anytime listener. If you like this show, we'd love it if you followed us or subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. Also, I know you hear this a lot, but if you can leave a rating or review while you're at it, we would really appreciate it. It just takes a second and it helps us a lot. Of course, you can also tell your friends to subscribe. That helps too. And thanks. Now here's the show. Some officers have demonstrated disrespect for the people they are sworn to protect. Attorney General Merrick Garland says cops in Louisville routinely used unreasonable tactics and aggressive force against black people, including Breonna Taylor. Thursday, March 9th, and this is Here and Now, Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, why are indigenous land acknowledgements more common in Australia than they are here? And Pritzker Prize-winning architect David Chipperfield talks about his work designing buildings around the world and why he wants more attention paid to how architects can solve social problems instead of just celebrating individual creative designs. But first... The Justice Department has released a damning report on the Louisville Police Department nearly three years after cops shot and killed Breonna Taylor in her apartment. The report details how Louisville police would cite people for minor offenses, like wide turns and broken taillights, while serious crimes like sexual assault and homicide went unsolved. Here's Attorney General Merrick Garland speaking yesterday. Some have videotaped themselves throwing drinks at pedestrians from their cars, insulted people with disabilities, and called black people monkeys, animal, and boy. This conduct is unacceptable. None of that is news to Chanel Helm. She's a Black Lives Matter organizer and activist in Louisville, and she told Deepa Fernandez the report squares with what she and so many people in the city have known for years. I think the word that everybody is using is vindication. It just hurts that it had to take another law enforcement agency to tell that. But from children to elders, it absolutely is a slap on the knee to be like, we told you so. Yeah. Talking about elders, I want to read one example in the report that I found particularly excruciating. And I'm reading from the report here. Officers responded to a call about an elderly black man, quote, dancing in the street. Within seconds of arriving, they grabbed the man, pulled him to the ground by his neck. Again and again, the man tried to understand what was going on, but officers ignored his questions. Instead, an officer sat on his head and neck while another officer struggled to handcuff him. After 30 seconds, the first officer got off, turned the man on his side and pressed his knee against the man's head and neck for nearly two minutes. Witnesses implored the officer to get his, quote, knee off the man's head. He's a human being. The man presented no threat, and the multiple neck restraints that the officers used here violated the man's constitutional rights, but the officers were not held accountable. In fact, the sergeant who later reviewed the incident noted that one of the officers broke a fingernail, but said nothing about the many times the officers violated LMPD's neck restraint policy, end quote. And again, that was from the DOJ report. There are so many egregious things that this report exposes, which comes from looking at body cam footage and reading the police's own documents, as well as interviews in the community and with law enforcement. 
in some ways, Chanel, this has been in plain sight. Is there any part of what was found that particularly upsets you? Um, As a police terrorism survivor, um, 2002, I was assaulted by six officers. I'm really shocked that some of the most more egregious situations where people have been terminally maimed and, and killed have not been mentioned. Last night, I was with children because just two weeks ago, police went into the neighborhood where we're located and shot two kids, which they claim on accident. And these children are still not in the trusting of spaces with police officers. But it is refreshing to know that like the things that we have been naming for decades are finally being recognized by another group, even if they're adjacent to the police. Mm. I mean, the report points out incredible impunity, officers never being disciplined or held accountable. What effect has that had on the community? When we talk about the historic nature at which the southeastern part of the United States exists with the history of enslavement and the slave patrols, that's just not a recounting of history or trying to detail what took place about 200 years ago. That is current time for us. It really is a bit frustrating that we still have to hear that there are recommendations to take with this type of behavior. This is a culture. You just don't become a police officer because you want to help the community. That's not a thing. We hear that a lot. But then more times than not, this is the type of behavior that is supported by other officers and that leadership within law enforcement supports. So tell us, what do you recommend? What should change? Um, There should be a better community involvement from our civic leaders, our council people, our mayor's administration, which we do not have right now. We also recommend that the communal factors are met first before funding police. Um, A lot of folks that are arrested and in the jail, which has seen 13 deaths within the year, are absolutely necessary. We are also asking for funding of an independent civilian review board. We are not asking that any civilian review board be situated underneath the government and produced by the government, um, any governmental agency. Chanel, I I wonder if we can just end by you telling us quickly what happened to you at the hands of the police. Yeah. Upon leaving a nightclub in which I was not drinking at all, I lost my phone and the nightclub told me to come back. So I waited outside of the nightclub The police came, they berated us, called us all type of names. I walked towards the nightclub and I was immediately attacked by um, officers. Six of them put their feet on me, kicked me and kind of strained my arm behind my back and then um, tried to attempt to take my car as well. I was arrested that night and charged with four charges of like disorderly conduct, failure to disperse and two alcohol intoxications in which everything was dismissed and expunged immediately because there was no proof to any of those things. The projecting from family members and friends just let me know that like how large this problem is. And since then, I've been very vocal about police accountability, but more importantly, police abolition. Do you think the police can change, Chanel? Absolutely not. The policing institution and the adjacent organizations that support law enforcement were built a particular type of way underneath white supremacy. And until we develop 
a new type of accountability within our communities, we will always have white supremacy as an overarching arm to law enforcement. Chanel Helm is an activist and Black Lives Matter Louisville organizer. Chanel, thank you for sharing with us. I, I know that was painful. Thank you. Coming up, Deepa recently took a trip back to Sydney to visit family, and she noticed a lot of broadcasters there acknowledging the native people whose land they're on. How the mainstreaming of indigenous land acknowledgements in Australia is going over with one Aboriginal artist, and why it isn't more common here. That's after the break. I was recently back in Sydney visiting my family. I was driving around a bit and had the radio on a lot. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, coming to you from Gadigal Land. This is ABC News Daily. Did you catch that? The radio host said Gadigal Land. That's the name of the indigenous land she was on as she broadcast her show. It struck me how many shows on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, which is similar to the BBC, began like this. It's ten past seven on Sunday the 12th of February. Coming to you from Gadigal Land, this is Julian Morrow on RN. Welcome to Sunday Extra. It's called Acknowledging Country, the country being the land of the specific First Nations people who lived there prior to British colonisation and still do. It's everywhere in Australia. Radio and TV shows, school assemblies, even politicians saying it before beginning a speech. Mr President, it is a pleasure to give Australia's national statement to the General Assembly. Here in Canberra, I'm on the ancient land of the Ngunnawal people, one of Australia's many Indigenous peoples who have cared for this continent for 60,000 years. This was the last Aussie Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, as he addressed the United Nations. Now, Morrison is from the Conservative Party, and it struck me that I couldn't imagine a US politician starting any speech acknowledging the native land they were on. I wanted to learn more about how this practice has become so mainstream in Australia and what it means for the lives of the country's Indigenous peoples. So I went to Petersham, a suburb of Sydney, on Wongal country, to the home of an Aboriginal artist, Tess Alice. I am um, of Wiradjuri descent, and Wiradjuri is a language group in the state of New South Wales. My grandfather was a Wiradjuri man and came down to the coast in the 30s, 1930s, and I am a descendant of him. One of the things that is noticeable when I come back here to Sydney is something that I don't experience much of at all in the United States, and that's I turn on the radio and I hear at the beginning of a radio program the presenter acknowledging the Indigenous land, the community, the group, where they are. And it feels very mainstream to me. How did that happen? There's lots of ways it's happened. It has happened, especially on the TV. As far as I understand it, it changed really just a couple of years ago um, that everyone was doing it. Prior to that, just a few different shows were doing it, like Gardening Australia was definitely doing it before the whole of the ABC was doing it. And I found that really fantastic because not only did it gives you a new mind map to see and view Australia. It also acknowledged the people who are of that country where that journalist or presenter or broadcaster was positioned. And for 
an organisation such as the ABC to make that mainstream has been, I think, incredibly important and such a beautiful educational tool. And how does that ripple in the country? Because you are from a certain country and if you hear your country being acknowledged, what does that mean to you? Um, I haven't heard it yet, Um, (laughs) but... If I did, I think it would just be really, it just, it gives you a sense of place, a sense of belonging and a sense of um, that your people have finally been acknowledged as being part of this country and of this country. Was it a struggle for Aboriginal communities to have people acknowledge that? I mean, I see it in people's email sign-offs. Yeah, I think it's gone very mainstream and I think for me, I noticed the change when I was working at an art school and I noticed that, that Uh, students started doing it uh, when they were having meetings and they were saying where they were from, what they were doing, or where they're positioned. And it was really, really beautiful to watch that. And I always think that out of art schools, they're always like five, ten years ahead of the rest of society. And um, I watched these amazing students just demand that, that action on the campus I was on anyway. Um, And of course, other organisations, Aboriginal organisations have been doing it for decades with each other. And traditionally, people have been doing it since time immemorial. So yes, it's gone mainstream, but it's probably only taken about 60,000 years. Mm. I mean, I have to say, you know, it's not done in the United States. It's far from mainstream. Could you give me an example of how, if you were encouraging someone to acknowledge the land that they're on, how would you do it? Well, if if ever I'm in your country or any other country, a colonised country, I will ask wherever I am, who are the traditional owners? And if they don't understand that, I will ask who are the uh, local First Nations people? The SF MoMA, I went in there once when I was working at the Art Gallery in New South Wales. I, I was on a holiday and I went into the SF MoMA to have a, um, just have a look and I got to the front desk and I asked if the First Nations curator was around and could I speak to them. And I got a look like I asked if the man from the moon worked there. <laughs> so that's when I realised that in some instances this country is far, far ahead of others. Yeah, and I just walked around and I didn't see any First Nations art. When people do it here, you know, one thing that I wondered is... Because it's so mainstream, do you feel like the acknowledgement of it maybe precludes other more concrete actions that First Nations people are demanding because we feel like we're acknowledging your land, we're good? Yep, uh, for sure. There is a performative element from some organisations. Some universities in particular are very good at performing an acknowledgement of country and then sacking their Aboriginal staff or ignoring all sorts of demands from Aboriginal students. But, you know, they're all good if they say it up front and they've got a mission statement on their website. Yeah, sometimes it is a performative element, especially if they have no Aboriginal staff or no Aboriginal input or no reconciliation action plan that they actually act upon. All sorts of performances do go on on a daily basis, that is for sure. How would it be done in a way that's not performative? What do you think, you know, as we think about this in the United States, if we wanted, say we began this program and I said, I'm Deepa Fernandes, you're listening to Here and Now and I am on, I'd like to acknowledge, maybe 
tell me how I should say that. Yeah, I don't know what what country you're on, when where you broadcast from. I don't know the name of the people. I'm not exactly sure in the United States whether they do it by language group, by tribal affiliation, or I don't know how they really do it. Um, I do know that the Kluge Rua Aboriginal Art Collection at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville have an acknowledgement on their website of the local people and they have now begun doing it in their um, opening events of exhibitions and that's all Australian Aboriginal art but they acknowledge their local people. So Tess, if I were to convince my bosses that we should start every radio program acknowledging the country, the First Nations people of, of where we are... What's the argument? Why should we do that? Um, Well, everybody who's not a First Nations person in a colonised country is a beneficiary of living in a colonised country. They have a job, they have a house, they have um, freedom of movement, they have all sorts of different things. And that's come as a direct result of from uh, the fact that where you are has been colonised. So whether you are a descendant of the colonisers or, or a visitor to that country, it makes no difference. And to acknowledge that you are here because of that history is, is just one way of paying respect to that history and the people who may or may not even be there anymore. I'm not sure of the exact history of where your organisation is from. And I can hear people say, but then... Doesn't that mean you owe them some kind of reparations? Doesn't if you're acknowledging that you're on their land, mm. is there more? Uh, so you're worried about capitalism coming in and giving to the people who actually deserve it, <laughs> and and of course the First Nations people of the United States deserve so much more than just an acknowledgement. You know, I I feel like just the flip side to that is maybe it's just easy to do, and then we think we've done enough. And now we're covered because, as is the way here on mainstream TV and radio, we hear it. Yeah, um, but there's also all other things going on. It's not the only thing that's happening, but you've seen it on the ABC. You've seen it, how great it is. But there's all these different organisations making demands of other things. Everything's going on still politically from a grassroots Aboriginal level up to federal government. Because, Tess, I have to say, like, I see really disproportionately high incarceration rates of Indigenous people. You see poverty rates of Indigenous people. You see the markers are are all showing that that's good and well that you can acknowledge that you're on such and such land, but those people's lives are not very good. Yeah, of course, an acknowledgement on um, Radio National is not going to change the life of somebody you know, who's in prison in Darwin. That's that's just not going to happen. I mean, but... um, like acknowledgement can't fix everything. Of course it can't. There's many threads to fixing um, social and historical injustices. The acknowledgement won't change corporate greed. It won't change capitalism. It won't change um, legislation. But it is a tool in educating Australia about the nation that they're sitting in and call home. Tess, Alice, thank you so much for joining us and educating us. Thanks. Thank you for inviting me. Wondering whose land you're on? We've got a map at hereandnow.org that will help you find out. Here in Chicago, I'm on the land of several Native peoples, including the Potawatomi, the Kickapoo, and the Ho-Chunk. Coming up next, David Chipperfield just won Architecture's top honor, the Pritzker Prize. He's known for his thoughtful and timeless buildings, 
but these days he's more interested in how cities develop than how to design individual buildings. Stick around to hear his conversation with Celeste Headley. designed by David Chipperfield are often described as understated. The British architect has never felt the need to place his personal brand on the structures he creates, and it's partly his restraint that has earned him the Pritzker Prize, widely considered architecture's top honor. Chipperfield's work includes the America's Cup building, a stack of offset white planes that rise along the harbor in Valencia, Spain, like the sails of a ship, and the Des Moines Public Library, whose expansive windows are shaded with copper mesh to let in light while reducing glare. David Chipperfield joins me now to talk more about his work and the award. Hello there, and congratulations. Thank you very much. I was interested to read in the citation uh, released by the Pritzker jury. They said, we do not see an instantly recognizable David Chipperfield building in different cities, but different David Chipperfield buildings designed specifically for each circumstance. I wonder how you in- interpret that, and does that ring true to you? Um, I think it's a fair comment, and it's a comment I, I wouldn't dispute. I would embrace it. There is a certain duality in the way we work as architects. One is that we have independent concerns and ideas. But secondly, we have the responsibility to deal with each particular location. We're not painters. You know, Our work is not located in our studios. They're located in, in real places. And therefore, architects have to juggle those two concerns. I also suspect that going forward, the emphasis of architecture will be possibly less on the singular contribution and more on the the general position. I mean, if we are really going to take environmental protection more seriously, if we're going to deal with sustainability and climate change, then that takes a more thorough reconsideration of architectural landscape, not just the reconsideration of one or two buildings. Let's dig a little deeper into that connection that you make between keeping in mind climate change and the environment and and sort of subsuming personal brand within the building itself. It sounds like you're making that connection. What does that mean? Well, there's a few interconnected issues here. And one is, what does architecture do and what can it do? I was trained to believe that architecture was not only uh, an artistic act, but it was also a social one. Most architects believe that, putting it simply, they make the world a better place. Um, Do they make the world a better place by creating more novel buildings or do they make the world a better place by their buildings? Uh, contributing socially and physically to uh, the city, the town, or the the environment they're built in. It's also a moment when we have to, as it were, take stock of how architects have been um, consumed into a sort of competitive role, because we are encouraged to be different to each other so that we can, as it were, prove ourselves in comparison to each other. I think one of the things we have to do as architects is not only show that one is better than the other, but we also have to show how collectively we are useful to society. 
So uh, let's take a specific example. Um, a, a building that drew a lot of, of debate and conversation was um, the Berlin's Noise Museum. And in 1997, you were chosen to renovate a museum that was built in the 19th century. It had been almost demolished um, during British bombing uh, in World War II. And you chose to preserve a lot of, of what could I think fairly be described as ruins and you you added modern additions um you you sort of blurred that line between the historic building and the new and you've said this ended up being very controversial in your process of designing for this at, at what point did you think okay I need to preserve even this part that looks as though it's beyond preservation well, the project itself came loaded with, with meaning and uh, emotion. And my uh, attitude and that of my studio was that we should treat it like any other archaeological remain, any other object that uh, was of great cultural significance. That is, if it was a painting uh, that had suffered damage, you don't uh, repaint it as if you were the original painter you don't you know you don't yeah. take a monet and then repaint it totally you if it's got damage you would try to repair it and you would try and soften that damage you wouldn't try to uh, make it like new again nor would you with a greek sculpture everything that has survived this traumatic war and survived the intervening 50 years uh, has an importance and we, sh we should keep it. And therefore, all of the decisions we made after that were um, subservient to that concept. It was controversial, but the process was, was very well articulated. We led the dialogue and I would say it, it demonstrated how good process can uh, produce good results. Architecture is not just product. It's about how you lead collaborations, which architecture requires. You have been fairly outspoken and, and plain-spoken in your criticism of bad architecture, especially bad modern architecture. I think your TEDx talk that you delivered in Marrakesh was, why does everybody hate modern architecture? What is, the, is there a short answer to that question in terms of why people don't like a lot of modern architecture? Um, <laughs> is there a simple explanation of how we've gotten to this place where new buildings go up and they're, I think the word you used for one was appalling. Well, I think there's a simple explanation, which is that the decision-making process, you know, is not very considered. You know, much of what's built around us is, is the consequence of investment energy more than design energy or, or consideration of what our city should look like. I think probably we all know roughly what type of city we would like to live in. We'd like nice streets, we'd like shops on the street, we'd like trees, we'd like a local park. You know, if you had 100 people in a room, you'd probably come to a fairly good consensus about what type of city one would roughly want to live in. And therefore, it's very strange that we don't build them. The forces which are making those decisions are clearly not mediated by our own individual concerns. They are part of a, a bigger machine, and, and that machine is, in many cases, money. Um, and the question is, how do we get back uh, in front of that and, and, and make our cities be more about us and, and less about abstract forces? The market doesn't necessarily, on its, on its own, 
make the right decisions. It has to be encouraged, coaxed, and to some degree restricted. Is there a building or maybe an architect whose work you admire, a, a building you love, but you think it, it hasn't gotten the attention it deserves? I think going forward, I mean, I, I think, you know, if I was to use such a question uh, as a way of emphasizing my concerns, possibly shifting from an admiration about a single building into an admiration about how things happen. I'm very encouraged when I see uh, cities that are really trying to deal with improving public space or improving traffic. I'm impressed when I see local planning authorities really, or, or local politicians really addressing the issue of subsidized housing and social and public housing because this is a, a crisis for our cities that no one can afford to live in the center of cities anymore. It's going to kill the city. So, you know, I, I suppose I'm less excited about singular buildings now and, and more interested in how architects, planners, politicians can put their thoughts together and really address the social and environmental challenges that our cities have. There's plenty of nice buildings. You know, I mean, I don't think the problem anymore is to build a nice museum extension. You know, I think there's plenty of architects more than capable of doing it. I mean, there's a lot of very good architects around doing very good singular buildings. I think the challenge now is how we as a profession become more engaged and more embedded with with issues which I, I, I think are are really critical. The way that we are building our cities is exaggerating social inequality, not not softening social inequality, which is what cities should be doing. Sir David Chipperfield, who just won the 2023 Pritzker Prize for Architecture, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Celeste. By the way, if you want to see some photos of David Chipperfield's buildings, including the Noise Museum in Berlin, head to hereandnow.org. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Catherine Swartz, Jill Ryan, and me. Todd Munt, Gabe Bullard, and Kat Welch edited today's show. Technical direction from Mike Moschetto and Max Liebman. Theme music by Mike, Max, and me. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll have another new episode tomorrow.